What I learned very quickly right off the bat is that everyone treats consultants differently. We're constantly fighting a war of attrition in any technology organization. Our best people have so many opportunities. I think it's funny that I live in Korea and I work on baseball when baseball is not allowed in America, but it is allowed in Korea. You're listening to The Talent Bubble, the podcast for HR, talent acquisition, and people ops practitioners to learn the tactics, tools, and techniques their peers use every day. We'll hear how they navigated their careers, learn about exciting projects they're working on, and get advice about working in the field. Learn more about The Talent Bubble at www.thetalentbubble.com. I'm your host, Brian Mooney. And this week is a special episode because we have a special guest host, and that is Josh Burke. Josh was recently a senior talent acquisition partner focused on technical recruiting at Patient Ping and has just joined Fresenius Medical Care as a talent acquisition manager. Josh was actually supposed to be a guest of the talent bubble, and we had sat down, had a conversation, and lost all of the audio. But I was so impressed with Josh and the conversation that we had that we kept in contact, and thankfully he agreed to come on the show as a special guest. So his guest for this episode is Zach Starkey. Zach is a principal at searchkey.io, where he helps other companies in the capacity of a talent consultant. It was great to hear Josh and Zach catch up and talk through Zach's career as he's worked in a staffing agency, in-house as a recruiter, and now as a consultant. Without further ado, here is Josh's conversation with Zach Starkey. So Zach, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to, to speak with us here on the Talent Bubble. I'm really excited to chat and learn a little bit more uh, about you, about the world that you've been in. Uh, you know, I understand, obviously, uh, we go back. I've worked with you in the past in your uh, capacity as the principal of SearchKey. Uh, but I'd love to take it even further back. Tell me a little bit about how you got into recruiting. Obviously, most of us don't go to school for this. I think I've spoken with exactly one person who intended to be a recruiter when they went to college. And I know that you are not that person. So tell me a little bit about how you got into that and what that experience was like at the beginning of your career. Sure. Well, I think uh, like almost everyone does, uh, I fell into it. I graduated in 2010 and needed a job that paid more than driving forklifts at Home Depot was going to pay. And so I think I did what a lot of people do, especially with business degrees that don't have a particular passion or driver or, or, or a specialty uh, education is I just applied for random things. I applied for marketing roles and random administration role, administrative roles, any type of business or corporate gig just felt like the direction I wanted to go. And it was a recruiting agency that hired me first, um, Aerotech, part of Allegis Group, which a lot of people know. At the time, I did not even understand what recruiters really were. I didn't know what they did. I didn't know what a staffing agency was or how it operated. Um, I had a very eccentric recruiter from Aerotech who brought me in, who described it in a way that I still don't totally understand, but uh, <laughs> they told me it was going to pay 36 grand a year plus commission. And that was all I needed. So I, I, I took it <laughs> and 10 years later, um, I'm still doing it. <laughs> now, uh, obviously, more recently, you transitioned into a more uh, like individual consulting uh, position. You're, you're no longer working for large agency companies. Um, how has that experience changed the way that you do your work and the way that you work with clients? So uh, my career is basically broken up into thirds. I did about a third of this 10 years now that I've been doing recruiting. Uh, 
a third of that was, you know, agency work between Aerotech and, and uh, Onward Search, which is you know, more of a permanent placement search agency. Uh, a third of that was corporate recruiting, just working in-house. And the last third of that, uh, or a little more than a third now, has been uh, consulting work, which is sort of a combination of the two, where I can do some things that kind of feel like agency work, do some things that feel like um, that corporate work. And I think having a background in both is really conducive to in independent consulting because you can be asked to do anything. And that's one of the reasons I love doing it because it's not ever just one thing. It's always recruitment related, but it could be software and systems related. It could be process related. It could be hunting down very senior level positions. It could be staffing up a big quantity of, of low level positions and everywhere in between. And having had exposure to both agency and uh, corporate side just helps you have a lot of credibility, you know, with your clients that you're working with. Um, it's been a lot of fun since I made that leap. I really haven't looked back and I don't, I don't really intend to at this point. So your first role outside of the staffing agency world was with Google. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, how that kind of formed sort of the processes and best practices that you've taken forward as a recruiter, as you've gone and supported other clients in the corporate space in the past? Yeah, what's interesting about Google is that, as one would expect, they put a lot of focus on quality vetting of candidates coming in. They painstakingly implement, uh, maybe over-implement structure around their recruitment process, exactly what criteria they evaluate. Uh, they ask their interviewers to actually list out the questions they've asked and summarize the answers that candidates give and how they felt about those answers. Those are then reviewed uh, across multiple committees when you go to actually hire somebody at Google. It goes to the, the team committee, like the departmental committee, and then it goes to the, the broader department committee, and then like the, the Americas committee, and then the compensation review. It goes through all these hoops. And some days you're, you're thinking to yourself, is all of this really necessary? But then you look at a company like Google, and you have to believe that they were doing this relatively early on. And when you work with a company that doesn't do any of this, and which is a lot of companies that just sort of hire who they like, they ask kind of arbitrary questions and sometimes all the same questions. There's no real rubric for grading criteria. Um, and over time, you see most of those companies don't have the same kind of growth or success. And so you might say Google's successful because of the product and because of the period of time that they launched. But also, I think if you adopt that kind of hiring practice for a decade, you will inevitably just bring in a higher quality of, of candidate that are better fits for their roles over and over and over again. And it really is about fit for the role, because I personally don't think there's like a bad candidate per se, right? Everybody's a fit for right. something. So it's just about making those uh, alignments and doing it over and over and over again. Then in 10 years, you've got senior leadership that, you know, you went through a painstaking process to bring in early on that are going to emulate that over and over again and it, it build up a lot of you know momentum. So that lesson I try to take to my clients now because there's no other way to get people to do stuff than giving them an example of why they're doing this stuff. So what inspired you to go to the consulting side? You know, what how did you make that leap? It sounds pretty obvious when I think about it now, but at the time I just didn't think of it. I figured I either worked at an agency or I worked in corporate and the idea of working in corporate was just to climb the ladder, move up into leadership and, and so on. And, uh, and I, I met somebody who's still a mentor of mine today at Essence who basically pitched the idea to me and said, you should go to work for yourself. And the, the benefits of doing that are it's more lucrative. You have more flexibility. You can often get into situations where you can completely manage your own schedule. 
work on site, work remotely if you want to. Um, you can do different kinds of work. I think that was the biggest pull. Um, working for different companies throughout the year, you learn a lot more, you can do different things, you can expand your skill set, um, and you can make more money doing it. And so that was a more difficult transition. I would say that was a more mentally stressful transition because it is higher risk. All, I, all I'm thinking when I went into it was, you know, I had one client from the beginning and I'm like, what happens when that's done? Like, I don't, I don't know. Can I, can I find another one? How do I find another one? Um, and so I, I just kind of, you know, it's like learning how to ski. You just got to go down the hill. All right. There, there's no other way to do it. So it uh, wasn't the easiest thing, but um, I would recommend it to anybody who's, who's had a, a career in recruitment and maybe is looking for something new or something interesting. Been pretty, pretty fruitful in my experience. Uh, as you were getting started, you know, what was that adaptation process like, you know, with your first client, you know, knowing that there was some uncertainty to your status, you know, did you feel that in that like first initial period as you began this process of really becoming a full-time consultant? Um, or did you feel like uh, you had, you know, similar or the same stability uh, when you were full-time or contract? It didn't feel all that different because I had done contract work before, right? And um, so I was used to that. I was used to feeling like I'm not really part of the team. I'm here to do a job. And that, since I'm talking about it, is probably the worst part of consulting. You know, you don't really build that, uh, those types of relationships with your clients because you can't because you're probably not going to be around too long. And sometimes the work you do is not always beneficial to everybody, right? You're in there to work with leadership and solve problems. So um, that's one thing you lose. So it didn't feel too different when I got into my first client, like under my own name. What I learned very quickly right off the bat is that everyone treats consultants differently and you have to be okay with that. Some treat you like a raw vendor. They don't even mm -hmm. care if you show up or not. Uh, they don't involve you with team meetings. They just, they hire you to bring people in, bring talent in or give them an answer, give them, you know, solve problem and be out. And that's fine. That's very mercenary like, but it's, it's okay. And on the other hand, some companies really, really take you in. You know, I worked with a, a, a health tech company uh, called Roe. Um, and I felt in the nine months I was there, I felt like I was with the team. I sat on site, uh, met with different departments every day, didn't have a different colored badge or anything like that. And, uh, <laughs> and I really, you know, I was there from nine to five. It was like a normal job. So that, you know, didn't feel all that different you know, except for the fact that I knew it was going to be a temporary thing. I knew there was no career progression. You know, I was there to do a job for as long as they needed me to do it. And, um, and then I was going to opt to fight another battle. Now, while you were with patient paying, you were fully remote. I mean, you only came up to visit maybe twice, I, I think over the course of your, your time with us. Uh, mm -hmm. What is that experience now? Certainly, and we're going to go into this in more detail after this conversation, but certainly you're, you're getting used to it now. But at the time, what was that like? Because I know most of your clientele has been in New York City where you were previously living. Uh, what was it like having to be fully remote with your client in Boston? You're right. Most of my clients had been in New York. So I was used to working partially remote. I was used to right. working from home a couple days a week or whenever I needed to um, or had an appointment or something like that, I would do it. But being completely remote for pretty much the duration of the contract is tough. One piece which is more of a working remote in general thing is just the motivation, right? And, and making sure that you're not letting things slip away because you don't feel the pressure that you do in an office. 
Uh, it might sound silly, but it can be very easy to like ignore things when you work remotely because there's nobody walking around talking about it, nobody tapping on the shoulder, hey, what about that report? With patient paying being completely remote, I would say the other thing that kind of detracts from the full experience of at least being able to be on site is that you don't have the opportunity to really build relationships with hiring teams. Recruiting is a an art form in some way. It's a relationship-driven job. I mean, it's not as simple as here's the right candidate. You know, you'd, you'd wish it was, right? It should be that way. Here's the right candidate and you just present them and they get the job and it's a great fit. But you have to do this whole kind of song and dance with the candidate, you know, getting them interested, helping them see all the benefits and, and vetting them out. Uh, but you have to do that with hiring teams too. You have to kind of stage these candidates, make sure that they know why this person is a good fit for their team. Uh, if you don't do any of that, um, people don't always know what they want, right? Hiring managers right. don't, don't know. Absolutely. That's, that's, what's one quick side note that you'll learn in recruiting is you learn, you think that your hiring managers know what they want and recognize it when they see it. They don't. So you have to work with them to help them understand what needs need to be filled and why these people you're presenting them are a good fit um, or not, and then shift up your search. Uh, but that building that relationship takes a lot longer when you're fully remote and you're on a zoom call once or twice a week, you know, as opposed to just being able to walk into somebody's office with a resume and go, what about this X, Y, Z cool. Yes. No, you don't like this, like that. Cool. Thanks. And then you can walk away. You know, those little shoulder taps I think are invaluable, um, especially over a period of time, right? One month, you're not going to feel the difference. Six months, you're going to realize you're way off from where you could have been in that department. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, your current engagement. Uh, so what I'll, I imagine most people would be surprised to hear is that it is currently 1243 in, uh, where you are. <laughs> so uh, for, for our listeners, uh, Zach is currently uh, actually living in Seoul, Korea uh, as a consultant uh, currently with Major League Baseball. Uh, Zach, could you tell us a little bit about uh, that engagement and maybe get a, give us a little update on what your current status is within that. I think it's funny that I live in Korea and I work on baseball when baseball is not allowed in America, but it is allowed in Korea and the, and the Korean people love it, you know, cause if you don't know much about South Korea, um, you're probably pretty average cause not, not a lot of people outside of Korea know much about Korea and they get very excited. It's a very exciting part of the culture when they see Korea represented in, you know, in other major areas uh, around the world. So it's really, they're very proud of it here. Uh, and I think that's really cool. But yeah, I've been, I came out to Korea in uh, November. So in that time, I've worked at night, generally 10 or 11 p.m. to 5, 6 a.m., um, eat breakfast, then go to sleep, <laughs> you know, for, <laughs> for a number of hours and get up and go to dinner and then go, go to work. Uh, so I've gotten used to it. The nice thing about working that schedule is that I've actually never broken um, jet lag. I've been on an Eastern time schedule for six months since I've been out here, effectively. MLB has been a great client to work for. I think they've, they've handled this situation very well. They're a very accommodating company. They don't care that I'm in Korea. They don't care that I'm you know, fully remote, um, just as long as, as the work's getting done and, and things like that. So, um, so it's been good so far, except obviously for the, for the furlough, right? With, with MLB shutting down and not having a season until I guess now July they're talking about. So obviously, as you, as you know, in the U.S. right now, a lot of recruiters are in the same boat. Um, you know, I am only just now about to get back to work myself after being laid off recently. Um, a number of people that I know in my network here in Boston are on furlough where I've been laid off. Uh, and there's been significant layoffs across the city 
uh, in a number of uh, industries have been really hard hit. Um, so it's a very shared and common experience today now, this feeling of being uh, in a holding pattern before getting back to productivity. Uh, do you have any advice for folks who are experiencing this same sort of like in-between status uh, to help them feel like, uh, you know, that same level of normalcy they may have had before everything hit? I've kind of walked a tightrope between the hardcore of you've got time on your hands, so read books, learn something new, be effective, be efficient in some way. And the other side, of which is like, you're never going to have this chance again to sit around and do nothing all day. And if you're fortunate enough to not be, you know, if you're fortunate enough to be in a financial situation where, you know, you're not actually struggling right now and you're just waiting, you know, and, and you're, you're just adjusting, um, kind of embracing that and just sitting around. I mean, and, and, you know, knowing that the rest of the world is kind of doing the same thing. So you're not missing out, you know, usually when you sit around for a week, you feel like the world has moved past you. And uh, in this situation, it hasn't. So um, I've walked a tightrope. My advice would be keep a schedule, having a hobby and, and just leaning into what you're feeling. Sure. So I am curious to learn about MLB. And I don't know how much you can tell us about the inner workings of Major League Baseball's talent operation, but I'm really interested because as you know, and as many people know, they know me, huge, huge Red Sox fan, huge baseball fan, but especially huge Red Sox fan. I'd love to hear a little bit about what the experience has been like working with MLB, obviously before the furlough, uh, and, and you know, what some of their needs have been that you've had a chance to work on and, and how those processes have been built. So I imagine a reasonably decent sized organization. Yeah, it's maybe smaller than some people would think. Um, but obviously, if you include the players and, uh, you know, the whole business of baseball, it's very big. I work within the tech segment of baseball, which is, you know, it's like 500 people. It's not a huge mm -hmm. company. Uh, gotcha. And that's the group that's building the app, the streaming platforms, the uh, the websites. The MLB manages all the club websites too. So, you know, you notice if you go to any team's website, they all kind of look and feel the same. That's because we manage all 30, you know, club sites in addition to MLB.com and tickets.com and so on. Um, so culturally, you know, it feels like, I would say a mid-sized software company, right? Right. Uh, it is just a very cool company. And I don't even like baseball. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a fun fact. I don't like baseball. I find it very boring. I don't watch it. Um, but even that being said, MLB is a very cool company to work for. The people are, um, are amazing. They're smart. I've never met somebody at MLB that's kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Like even the people that I was warned about, I had like a meeting and I'm like, it's not that bad. And I'm like, yeah, no, we got bad here. You know? So um, <laughs> I like that. You, you don't have a lot of politics. You don't have a lot of, you know, other sort of corporate issues that you have in, 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 you know, in other companies and maybe it's a sports thing. I don't know. Cause I'm not really a sports guy, but, um, but yeah, generally it's been a very, very positive experience. Great place to work. So what you're saying is you don't have to be a baseball fan to successfully enjoy working for Major League Baseball? Exactly. Yeah. I was worried because, well, for one thing, you worry that they don't want to hire people that aren't baseball fans and yeah. they, they really don't care. Some jobs you need to be, you know, if you're working in like product on the mobile app, probably you want to be a baseball fan because you probably wouldn't want that job if you're not a baseball fan. <laughs> um, 
but they also want, want people to have an interest so that they can you know design the apps better but uh but no you don't have to be a fan to enjoy it it's a very very cool company the things they're doing with technology regardless of the fact that it's sports technology is very cool very interesting um and the people at baseball are very humble i mean in stark contrast to a place like google where you have these kind of larger than life characters that have grown this ego like you know to hear from working at google especially if they've been there for more than five years more than 10 years you know these kind of delusions of grandeur about how brilliant they must be because google feeds a lot of you know kool-aid to their to their their people i would say that's the worst thing about google um, not to bash them. It's a great company to work for, but that is probably the one, the one thing I don't really like about it. Um, and MLB being an equally massive and popular brand, uh, and sought after brand to work for, uh, you have no, there's no attitudes there. There's no yeah. ego. You can talk to the CTO, the heads of product, the heads of engineering, and they seem like very grounded down to earth people that have only one goal. They just want to build cool technology for baseball fans. And that culture is um, incredibly refreshing. So if anybody who's not a sports fan, I would say, but is concerned to work for, uh, has an opportunity to work for like a league, don't worry about the fact that you don't like sports. I assume there are some similar, you know, uh, carryovers into other sports, NBA and NFL and so on. Um, but it hasn't been an issue at all for me finding the baseball very boring and working there. <laughs> You know, uh, there's one part of that that I think is really interesting. And it's something that uh, obviously is in my background as a technology recruiter has been really interesting to me as well, is sometimes you really do find the best technical personnel from the most unexpected sources. Folks who are truly talented, but uh, maybe haven't uh, experienced places like Google or elsewhere that may have, uh, it would have otherwise enabled them to establish biases with their interviewers that they were, you know, somehow more successful. Um, some of the highest performing engineers that I've hired in my career uh, came from companies I had honestly never heard of, um, even as a recruiter whose job is really to pour through the tech space. And so um, I think that's really interesting. Sometimes it's just so much more important uh, to think about values and think about, uh, you know, what somebody brings to your organization uh, than it does, like, what are the words on their resume? And uh, actually, uh, the funny thing is, you were part of why I learned that, because way back uh, when I was getting started at Onward, uh, you told me, talk to everyone, uh, because you don't know. You're not an expert on someone just because of their resume. Um, so, so that's a Zach Starkey wisdom nugget that I've held on to the last seven years uh, as I've grown my own career. Um, so it's, it's kind of interesting to see now you're in an organization that truly feels the same way. Yeah. I appreciate that, Josh. I'm, I'm warms my heart that you even remember that. It's very nice. <laughs> um, but 100% still true. And that's why I cringe when I work for companies that say things like, let's just go after, you know, Google talent and Facebook talent and management consulting firms like Bain and McKinsey. And then just sort of arbitrarily hire anybody they can get that's of interest there. And you realize that some people get into those companies that aren't really that good. They just figure out right. a way in. They know somebody, they pass the test, they get in, and now they're working for a rocket ship where they can't really single-handedly mess anything up. And you could just hire that person in another company and they will underperform even with that, you know, that name on their resume. 
and you know, and I've worked for a few companies that are like that. And there's very little you can do, I think, to dissuade, you know, a CTO or a tech leadership team from that. Um, but I would encourage, you know, anybody out there that has experienced that to talk more about hiring for potential than mm-hmm. the resume. I mean, you don't need to hire the best developer because if you hire a developer with three years of experience, they could have a 10 year long career. What can you teach them in those 10 years? Can they become uh, an extremely high performing developer? Probably, right? If they have the right attitude and they're collaborative and they work well with your team and they gel with your, your company values, um, you know, and they have a, and if they have a, a tendency to want to learn and develop themselves, that's the sweet spot. You know, that's like buying an underpriced stock. You want to buy something that's yep. really valuable but cheap. And that's what you get when you find a really good employee, whether they're a developer or not, that is early on in their career. So they're not going to cost you an arm and a leg, but they have this potential to just grow. So like hire people those in and, and nurture them, you know, as opposed to going straight for that Facebook engineer with four years of experience making 200 grand, you hire them and then maybe they come in with this attitude and maybe they don't really produce that well and they make excuses and things don't go well. And then if you have to fire them, it's a big, and that costs you a million dollars, right? Like you, you blink and you've wasted a million dollars on that hire because you wanted Facebook in your organization, you know? Right. You know, it's interesting too, because uh, you're at MLB and I know you're not a baseball fan. So this reference may mean nothing to you, but what we're really talking about here is Moneyball. Uh, just in technology talent rather than in baseball talent, uh, but it's still equally valuable. How do you find the undervalued resource and bring them in? You know, we're constantly fighting a war of attrition in any technology organization. Our best people have so many opportunities, even in a recession. Uh, the best companies need the best people. And we're never, unless you're working for Google or Facebook or maybe Amazon, you're probably never going to be able to like pay them more than literally any other opportunity that's going to come to them. Really smart people can get a better job. But if you can bring in people who truly see this opportunity um, as a way to grow their careers and develop, like you said, they could have a 10-year career with your organization. Superstars have to become superstars somewhere. And if you're only hiring for superstars, you're going to go bankrupt. How do you convince your teams to actually buy into that idea? Now, at MLB, maybe that's already established, but how have you brought teams into sort of this notion that it is the right strategic decision to take a chance on somebody who might be uh, less experienced? It's tough. Well, changing anybody's mind on anything is tough, right? People like, <laughs> people like hearing what they want to hear. They don't like hearing things they don't agree with. And that's just a human trait. So if you're going to try to change someone's mind and you're going to try to introduce somebody to a new idea that they are not convinced of, um, it's really, really difficult. I mean, some tactics I think you can apply if the data is there, uh, look at historical hires. You know, that's mm-hmm. probably one of the key ways to do with it. If you can look at 10 or 15 or 20 people that were hired, let's say three to five years ago in the organization, like pick everybody that was hired in 2015, find that list somewhere, should exist in HR records, and then sit down with leadership and talk through all of those people who did really well who didn't do well, who's still with the organization, who's not with the organization, you know, who performed as expected, who performed better or worse than expected over the years, and then look at their backgrounds. And and you're probably going to find instances in there where you've had folks with absolutely dead on perfect resumes 
that seriously underperformed or left the organization. You're also going to find some people that had really nothing of interest in their background and came in and became absolute superstars. So if you want to take a data-driven approach, I would try that uh, and get your clients uh, or company's leadership team to look at those things, find some examples of people that did really, really well and try to articulate why. And it's, it's impossible, right? You can't know exactly why someone was highly successful in an organization. Maybe that person is just highly motivated and you got lucky. Um, but you might be able to work backwards from that and figure out how to incorporate that into how you vet talent. Um, and that goes into structured interviewing, which I'm a big uh, supporter of, um, and having some sort of a scoring rubric so that you know you can interview somebody and you can look and see how they performed against these certain criteria. And you know if you can start there and build it into a rubric and get your leadership team to follow that rubric, you will change their minds and you will see people at least giving opportunities to interview folks that they think don't look very good based on their resume. They think, oh, this is not interesting. Cause you get that all the time. Oh, I don't like this resume. I don't like that resume. And you're like, <laughs> what, are you a genie? Like, how do you know? You're looking at a piece of right. paper. Like talk to somebody and interview them and, and uh, put them through the, the gauntlet. And if they don't make it, or if the, the scores are all over the place, then at least you can know with confidence that that person wasn't the right fit. But once you can implement that, you'll see rock stars fail it. And they might not know why, but you can at least feel confident in saying, I know that engineer from Google looked really appealing and wants to work here and all these things, but I'm telling you, there's a good chance they're not going to do well, right? You right. can't always know you're making the right hire. All you can do is get as close to that as possible so that you have less ambiguity in your, in your recruitment process. And when you do that over time, um, then you'll start to see those kind of major changes in your organization when you've been hiring like that for three, five seven years and now your organization is full of those and you're just generally hitting a, a lower fail rate sure let me tell you i don't trust any recruiter who uh, tries to sell themselves as knowing how to get it right any more than 75 percent of the time there's just no way and even if you say 75 percent of the time i don't know if i believe that either uh, so much needs to be done um, just to get a little bit better than 50-50. It's a really unique experience as a recruiter. Um, but uh, you mentioned structured interviewing. Uh, I think I would agree with you. That is one way that you can really push the odds better in your favor. Can you talk a little bit about how you see structured recruiting, what that means to you, or structured interviewing? Yeah, I, I was first experienced it, uh, first exposed to it at Google. Um, and then over the years, I've partnered very closely with Greenhouse, uh, which is a very popular enterprise ATS that um, if you're not familiar, greenhouse.io, it's a great product. Um, and it's an incredibly complex product. It takes a, a, a lot of power, a manpower and brain power to set up properly. But the idea is to structure your interview processes, meaning each candidate that interviews for a job goes through you know, 95% of the exact same process, being interviewed by the same people, being asked the same questions, um, and being evaluated based on you know, somewhat quantifiable you know, um, criteria to those questions. And granted, there's a limit here because you're talking about human interactions. You can't quantify the entire thing into a number, but you can put um, those sort of uh, elements in place which ultimately make it easier to compare candidates. 
um, makes it easier to feel confident about higher or no higher decisions. And it, uh, you know, it, it gets you away from, from the usual. When you don't have this in place at all, you just sort of ask people random questions and hire somebody that you like. It's more of a game of timing. You know, it's never, right. you never feel, I never feel like my clients are really going to hire the right person when I do that. I just know that I'm going to send them candidates. They're going to interview a couple of people and they're probably going to hire the fourth or fifth one. I mean, that's just normal. First person never gets the job. Usually the fourth or fifth person gets hired because they just then feel like, well, I've interviewed a bunch of people now and I met this person and I like them. I feel like they fit the bill. Plus it's been a little while and I need somebody in this seat. So I'm just going to hire this person. Uh, candidate number two might've been the best one, but we have no idea. We probably don't have documented feedback. If we do, the questions that we asked them were all different. So it's like apples and oranges. You can't say yep. candidate A was better than B. Um, there's no data, no information. You just have to go on your, on your gut. And like you said, I don't trust any recruiter that relies heavily on their gut. I don't trust any hiring manager that relies heavily on their gut. Because uh, what your gut is, is your brain working. So you just got to figure out what your <laughs> gut is and quantify that. Why do you right. think this is good? Let's factor that right. into their criteria and let's do that for everybody. Right. And what your gut can be sometimes, it's just a number of biases and they may not necessarily be effective the way that we think that they are. So you're absolutely right. Taking the uh, subjectivity as much as possible out of an interview process is so valuable. So Zach, uh, it's really been fantastic getting a chance to learn from you today. Um, you and I go back and so uh, I knew this conversation was going to be really fruitful and there's something truly unique about being a true consultant. Um, you know, really living in between the corporate recruiting path and the agency recruiter. And so I'm excited that uh, we're really able to, to, to dive deeper on that today. And I know you could talk about this forever. Uh, same here. Uh, and, you know, maybe in the future, we'll, we'll go even further with the discussion. But I, I just want to thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, if anybody wants to reach out to Zach, you'll have more information in the blog post that will accompany this, this video and podcast. Um, you know, we can reach him uh, on LinkedIn. Uh, he, of course, is the principal at searchkey.io. Zach, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, always a pleasure, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Talent Bubble. If you found this conversation interesting, please share it with your friends and colleagues and visit our website at thetalentbubble.com. Enjoy your day and be well. <laughs>